Hello and welcome to this very special RFDS podcast, Renewed Horizons Beyond the Pandemic, a wellbeing tool for the RFDS community to help manage the current phase of COVID-19 with resilience, compassion and courage. I'm Katrina Blowers, Seven News presenter and proud ambassador for the RFDS Queensland section. And in these podcasts, we're holding space for healthy and real conversations about the valuable lessons we learned through COVID and some tools and advice we can utilise today to make the transition out of the pandemic a much smoother ride. But before we dive in, the RFDS acknowledges the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast on, the Turrbal peoples. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, including those listening today. Ready for takeoff? Let's begin. It's certainly no secret that the toll on our mental health was one of the most significant but often hidden costs of the pandemic. According to the WHO, the global prevalence of depression and anxiety increased by 25%. So if that is you and you're still feeling the effects of a really long and hard few years, know you are not alone and it is entirely okay. How lucky are we then that a 19-year-old Tim Driscoll will then 19-year-old just happened upon an opportunity to fall into a career in mental health when he applied to be a nurse's aide at a psychiatric hospital in Ireland. His qualification? Chasing cows on a WA property. Not quite sure how that fit the bill, but his experience in Ireland certainly sparked a love affair in the field that saw him go on to study psychology and eventually become the clinical lead for Outback Mental Health for the Flying Doctors. Dr Driscoll is so kind, calm and insightful. And in this chat, we talk about the toolkit you'll need if you're still feeling a bit wobbly or anxious and how not to bring your work home with you when your pandemic experience might still be so different to what your friends or family are going through. Dr. Tim Driscoll, thank you so much for joining me on the RFDS Wellness Podcast. It's so lovely to have you with us. It's great to be here. Firstly, I guess, what would you say to uh, people who have the perception that the pandemic is in the rearview mirror? Is it or has it changed the way that we practice forever? Well, I, I think that there certainly are things that have changed. Um, you know, if you think about life, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, things are still different for then. Uh, we're certainly not out of the woods in terms of it's still impacting people. We're, we're still seeing people getting very sick uh, with coronavirus. Um, it obviously has impacted the, the way that we live and work. Uh, you know, we're still wearing masks on our planes. We're still taking, you know, quite serious protective measures to make sure that we're, you know, controlling potential for contagion. And it, look, it's still an ongoing challenge that that we're facing, you know, obviously we're we're looking at, uh, you know, vaccines have made a big impact on in, in terms of improving uh, the community's resilience to a, a potential pandemic. But obviously, you know, we're we're still concerned about the impacts of COVID into the future. Obviously, we we've got more tools than we had previously, and we've got a greater understanding of what's involved in combating the virus. But it, it, we're certainly not out of the woods with it. it. It's still a challenge that our community faces, and it's still a, a challenge that our workforce within RFDS faces. So, it's still very much centre of mind. And I, I think within RFDS, I think we, we certainly see it as an ongoing challenge that we're, we're dealing with. Apart from the day-to-day practicalities of it, 
Would you say that the fatigue of working in an environment where you are so heavily impacted by, you know, having to not not only don PPE but manage your patients' expectations? Yeah, look, look in terms of, you know, the potential uh, for fatigue, um, obviously, you know, some of those additional challenges that, that we face in terms of even the PPE that we're required to wear, obviously it's putting an extra pressure on everyone's day. And, and the increased stress in terms of if you're, you're worried about putting your family at risk, for example, in, in the workplace if you're uh, potentially exposed to coronavirus, obviously that absolutely does play a, you know, a significant role in uh, people's level of stress. So, look, I, I guess in terms of the practical requirements, in terms of the protective gear that we're required to wear, I mean, that's actually, you know, putting a physical stress on our people. Um, you know, everyone out on our planes, you know, wearing wearing masks. Um, and that, that's, you know, additional uh, to particularly in the summer months when we were seeing, you know, really hot conditions um, and, you know, the additional requirements of those um, PPE requirements actually did put, you know, increased physical stress on people. So that was really adding to, to people's pressure throughout the day. And obviously, just the you know the stress of contracting the virus potentially, but also in terms of other communities, us going in and out of those communities, and also reassuring them that, that we weren't a risk to them because you know we were moving through small communities. So you know that's another stress for people that we hadn't really seen before. So if you imagine, you know, people are very very happy to see the RFDS come into town, um, but often to to see that as a as a potential threat to community health, um, you know, with having, having people moving through communities, um, you know, that was a very new pressure that we sort of hadn't experienced before. So that was um, one of those challenges that um, the staff probably hadn't experienced really in, in other areas in terms of um, you know us being a potential threat to community. That was very new. Now that you have, I guess, the, the benefit of hindsight, was there a, a sort of a, a narrative arc of how that stress manifested and played out amongst the team? Did it kind of peak and then dip again and, and peak at different times of the pandemic? How, how did it sort of manifest? throughout the the workforce? Well, I guess when it first started, uh, we certainly wouldn't have foreseen it going on for as long. I remember when we were first sort of talking about, you know, what we were going to do, how we were going to manage the risks. And and we weren't thinking that we'd be here now, you know, still taking you know, precautions. I mean, I, I don't think that expectation was in, you know, in, I mean, some people might have known more about it and might have realised that you know, it was very likely that this was the case. But as I guess is, is more of a, a layperson in this particular regard, I'm not, certainly not an expert on viruses. I think our expectation was that we we were sort of seeing an early big response and then we'd be sort of through it. I don't think we were sort of expecting it to be so protracted. And in some areas, I think we saw that initial anxiety and then we, we did see some things in terms of you know increased concern in terms of smaller communities that we were going to. Um, and then it had sort of an indirect impact on us as well in that we you know needed to reassure people that we're taking all the measures to, to make sure that we weren't putting people at risk. But obviously all the different ideas as well in terms of you know the the, the you know the vaccine scenes when they when they came into the the picture we had people had concerns about them in the community so that was obviously um you know sometimes put a bit of a divide within communities in terms of you know the vaccine debate that was going on so that you know we're obviously being a you know medical organization we were often you know involved in that with different people throwing different theories at us so it did sort of change um, our role in that way even in a mental health space um that we we wouldn't have had to deal with that previously um so i, I guess it wasn't so much an arc as it was sort of different events that happened 
And, you know, we had to respond differently to those. I mean, I think there was the initial sort of lockdown phase where, you know, we were very cautious. We, you know, non-essential travel was absolutely restricted or removed entirely, essentially. Uh, and then we moved into the really more proactive, you know, we, we do need to provide some face-to-face service um, and how we're going to do that safely. Uh, what are the safety measures? Um, and then we were sort of realising that, you know, the broader picture of health, you know, coronavirus was was one of those large considerations. But at the same time, we had to make make sure that people were getting their other health needs met, for example, mental health in particular. So if you imagine people who are more vulnerable, they're also potentially less likely to use the telehealth options if they're not, um, you know, experienced and using more of access to that technology. So that there was a lot of things to balance during that period. So I think initially we were just, you know, we were locking down in terms of how do we keep everyone safe from coronavirus. Uh, and then that was one of the, you know, one of the many considerations in terms of how do we promote overall health within the communities we service. I mean, that's when we sort of moved to more of that. How do we operate safely and still provide as much of the service as we possibly can while keeping in mind the, the restrictions that we needed to follow to keep people safe from coronavirus? So I'm not sure it was that you know traditional arc you might see because it was multiple events we sort of saw and there was there was changes in terms of how best to approach it. The advice changed over time and you know we had to adapt quite rapidly. I mean we were off the ground very quickly you know when that when that first came in because we didn't want to you know risk uh, people contracting coronavirus. So a lot of our movement was severely restricted um, and we were really only doing things that were absolutely essential face-to-face that you just couldn't do in any other way but everything else was absolutely restricted. What were some of the strategies that you put in place within the organisation to to manage the mental health of your staff through this time and what worked particularly well? Well, we did provide uh, fairly good information. I mean, I think most of the support we saw, I mean, you've got the sort of official response and you, you would have seen some of the sort of podcast information we put out to staff, you know, which were very much a self-care based really in terms of making sure that we were looking after ourselves during an increasingly stressful time. Um, but really, most of that support really came from, you know, within teams. You know, people did have quite different reactions and people had very different changes to their, their working environment. So we certainly had some advice we put out to all staff. And we did that in a you know a variety of formats, from podcasts to you know information sheets, um, but also you know talking to, to more senior people in the organisation in terms of how they were going to support their teams. Um, and really, as is the case most of the time, most people got support from their immediate team, and that's where people's you know that's where the eyes and ears and, and actual support really does come from when we're dealing with this is within our within our smaller teams. Um, and I think that's where a lot of that. Um, really did come from. Um, we did have some practical things that we put out. We sent out a, a care package um, from corporate office to all the bases, um, and that was you know things like a water bottle, uh, hydration, um, sort of cooling sprays, and a, a bandana to cool people down. Uh, so there was that sort of you know those practical things that were really helpful, and I think that was useful for people in terms of you know there was that direct benefit of having those things. I mean they're very practical. It's very very hot on those planes when the vent's sitting on a tarmac, but also just you know, demonstrate that you know care and recognition of the extra work that people were putting in uh, and I think that really all helped uh, in terms of you know people feeling supported during that during that time um, but again look most of that support came from people's immediate teams and there you know self-care does um, copper a bit of a ribbing from time to time for being you know bubble baths and Enya music but it's about so much more than that isn't it how would you describe it 
Well, really, self-care is anything that you do that keeps you well, um, and that's a very individual thing. Um, I mean, there are those things that seem to be quite key for all of us. I mean, those basic things like making sure that we're eating well, making sure that we're getting enough sleep, uh, making sure that we're getting some exercise, um, you know, making sure that we're, we're carving out some time for our social lives and making sure we're, we're staying connected with other people. They, they seem really, really key, but, you know, outside of that, you know, there's there's things that are absolutely you know unique and individual to the person, um, and it is about just those things that really do keep you well. And I think there's some basics that are kind of across the board. But you know, having an interest, having something you're working towards, uh, all those things are really really key. Uh, and there's not a classic you know, this is what you need to do. I mean, it is individual. You just need to make sure that you're spending time and investing time in those things that you know keep you well. That may well be, you know, and your music in a bubble bath, but it might be many other things. Um, yeah, there's, there's certainly no one way of doing it. But I guess the, the key message there is make sure you're spending some time on whatever it is that you've found really keeps you well because it's just essential. You mentioned burnout before, and I feel like burnout's become a really big topic of discussion, particularly uh, in, in this current phase of the pandemic where lots of people who weren't able, especially frontline staff, weren't able to take their annual leave during the peak of the pandemic. Uh, They're they're still incredibly busy and so they've they've reached that phase now where they're very fatigued both physically and mentally. What signs would you suggest people look out for to not only manage their own burnout but the burnout of their staff, what are some key indicators that you might be headed in that direction? Yeah, look, there's lots of key indicators for, you know, potential burnout. I mean, even by itself, that feeling of persistent tiredness is enough to have you really concerned. Um, You know, as as you sort of progress, um, you know, something might you know, seem like much more of a challenge in terms of even going to work. Sounds like something you, you might dread. Also, your, your attitude to, you know, the service you're providing. So, uh, I'm in mental health. And, and one of the things you'll notice when people are sort of progressing down that burnout road is that they'll you know, be actually very happy when someone uh, doesn't turn up for an appointment. They, you know, someone who's previously been quite passionate about their role and, and gets a lot out of providing that good quality service, you know, has a sense of almost dread in terms of going into work, not wanting to, to see patients or clients. That That's a real red flag. And if, if that's happening, it, it is really time to take a break. And it's, it's it happens more than um, people would realize because it really does creep up on people. Um, so it's a sort of a bit of a, a slow slide. Uh, it's, it's a real risk. But if people aren't really getting that, I, I guess, sense of enjoyment out of the their work is a really good is a really well it's not a good sign it's a bad sign that potentially we we might be headed down that burnout road anything like you know changes in appetite even changes in sleep is a big one um sometimes people won't necessarily identify very quickly that their you know overall sense of enjoyment is slipping away but you might notice that um their sleep's changing it's a much more objective kind of measure um so any of those kind of changes you, you might you might find yourself being more emotional is another thing that does happen um so things upset you more more than they would otherwise. Or the other thing that you might might experience is almost it's a bit of a sense of like grayness where you're not really getting the same sort of sense of engagement out of what you're doing. Uh, and that can happen really, really easily. And and look, the, the solution for it is, is a break. You know, that that's the, the, there is obviously there's all sorts of self-care strategies and all those sort of things you can do. But sometimes you actually need to step away and take a break because I, I think sometimes people can get in that situation where you know, they're, they're doing, they're, they are doing the self-care things, but to the point where, you know, there is a point at which that stops working and you actually do need to take a break. You can only push yourself 
yourself to a certain certain level, even if you're doing absolutely everything to maintain your wellness, you, you still need to do you know take that break occasionally to to revitalize. And um, there's there's none of those sort of tricks that are that are going to get you through that if you're pushed to the point where you're burning out. Um, and people really do need to take a break at that point because it's just it is quite a dangerous thing burnout. I um, mean, it can become depression quite quickly. Yeah, that that was my next question actually. What happens if you if you keep pushing through, keep pushing through? What are the potential dangers? Yeah, depression is absolutely what your danger is. Um, yeah, burnout. You end up in a bit of a depressive hole. Um, and the, the longer that's left for, the worse it is. So imagine you do get to the point where you're, you're feeling pretty miserable. You're not really getting much joy out of anything and you're being potentially clinically depressed. Uh, the other thing that happens is that, you know, you're also more difficult to be around and your relationships suffer. So, um, and that's, you know, your personal relationships and your work relationships. And then the longer you stay in that situation, you've got all these other things to repair. So it's not just the fact that your mood's been knocked right down and you, you might be experiencing depression. It's all those other things that are now loaded on top um, because your relationships have suffered and and that that's why it's so important that, that people do get in early because there's all those things that just load on top you know if if we allow ourselves to, to burn out and potentially end up depressed you know the, the longer we're down there and the deeper we get into that hole the harder it is to get out and it, it is very possible to get out but tell you what it's better off if we can sort of avoid the hole altogether burnout used to be a bit of a dirty word to talk about openly particularly in the medical profession do you think times are changing now? I hope so. and I, I think they are. I, I think that there has been a shift. I think there definitely has been a shift in terms of that, you know, sort of just go on regardless. You know, I, I'm a, um, you know you'll, you'll see that with doctors working ridiculous hours and, and pushing themselves to the extreme. And look, and you, you do see that, you know, with doctors and nurses and, and clinicians of all varieties. But I, I do think there's growing awareness that, you know, that, that's not an effective way to really operate long term. And it's not a helpful way. I mean, some people can get away with it. You know, some people can do that to, to some extent. But the other problem is what it does to the team. So if you imagine you've got someone working longer and longer hours, even if it doesn't take them out, the rest of the team are going to be feeling really pressured to work at an unreasonable level, which means that they're at increased risk of burnout. So it's not just the individual who we're putting at risk here. I mean, they're obviously at risk themselves and they, you know, you do see them burn out, but it's also what happens to the whole team where they're, they're feeling they're all, they're all needing to operate at that level where they're pushing themselves to a, a potentially dangerous level. So I hope it's changing. I, I, I certainly think it's changing. We're, we're certainly, um, you know, the conversation I think has certainly changed around that. Like, you, you know, people will absolutely talk about that in a different way. Um, but I, I, I still think there does, you know, exist that sort of undercurrent where people feel within themselves that they do need to sort of, well, I mean, our, one of our slogans is, you know, above and beyond, which is, you know, a bit of a risky thing if you're a if type A person who's pushing themselves really, really hard. So, um, you know, we do need to be cautious of that. You mentioned uh, the necessity of, of strong teams and how that's really played a key role in, in helping the organisation come through the other side of, of this pandemic. Uh, what have been some of the practices that you as an organisation have done to encourage that openness and sharing within teams where I guess we're, talk we're having conversations, more vulnerable conversations with each other 
than we've ever had before. Yeah, look, we have a little way to go in, in that regard. Look, we, we are doing things to try and to promote that. So we have done some trainings across some of our bases in terms of, you know, how we support people and each other. And, and that's, you know, that's quite useful. Uh, it's still an ongoing process. So there's, there's still a project that our uh, state mental health manager is leading, uh, which is really aimed at looking at leaders across the organisation and improving their mental health literacy in terms of how they support their teams. Um, so that's an ongoing project. That's really quite useful. Um, we've obviously done things more locally in terms of we've had conversations with people about how to support one another, and that's been quite useful. Um, but that, that's certainly an ongoing area that we're you know, continuing to improve on. Um, and we, we assert, we're, we're not quite there yet, but our, our state mental health managers working with um, our training teams to look at rolling out a program where we're able to support leaders to support their teams. Um, and I think that'll be quite useful as well uh, and useful for them as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot of weight that gets put on the shoulders of, um, you know, leaders within the organisation and and obviously we're not schooled in all areas. Um, and it also helps them to sort of, you know, navigate those more challenging areas because mental health impacts, you know, one in five of us every year. And as the pressure goes up, the, the risk to our, our staff increases. And also just having that sort of you know, literacy within our organisation makes a big difference. And we have done some previous work on that, and I think we've done quite well. Uh, I think the other thing is that um, people are quite comfortable to sort of reach out to our mental health team if they're looking for advice in terms of other staff. I think that's been useful. Um, but in terms of that sort of more formal process, that's something that's really ongoing. I wanted to ask you now about the ongoing nature of this pandemic, the, the fact that I guess the rest of the world has entered a bit of new normal, but for staff in, in health and in your particular organisation who are still having to wear masks on board planes and, and implement those increased um, sanitary measures on board, it, it's still very much an ongoing thing. How are you going about managing that fatigue when people just want to go back to normal and they see people in other sectors going back to normal, but uh, for you guys, it's it's pretty different. Yeah, I think one of the, the key things is that clear communication in terms of why we're doing that. Uh, and if people understand the, you know, the why behind those extra precautions um, in having them on board with that, it does take away that sort of perception of why are we having to do these extra things. Other sectors aren't having to do all these additional things that are adding time to our day. But I, look, I think we have people on board in terms of you know, having that clear information and why we're doing that, why it's so important. I mean, we're servicing remote communities. We need to protect their health and well-being. Obviously, you know, if you're in a remote area, you have less access to health care. Um, and if you imagine bringing, you know, potentially into a, a more isolated community, um, you know, that obviously has a larger impact than if you're in a city, for example, where you've got greater access to health care. Uh, so I think people certainly appreciate the need to be you know, particularly cautious within our organisation um, because of the nature of our work. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, that that's a big part of that question in terms of how do we deal with that sort of fatigue. If people know why they're doing it and they, you know, they value that, you know, that outcome of making sure that we're keeping everyone safe, then it does get much easier to maintain. And if it makes sense, then we're obviously, you know, more than happy to take those extra precautions. In terms of, you know, the other things are practical. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting fairly used to the mask wearing. We, we're getting used to um, taking those extra precautions. So it's not like it's, it's something new for us at this point. Um, you know, things do become automatic. And if we're continuing in this in a, in a prolonged period, uh, a lot of this does become automatic. It's the change often 
where people find the, the most stress. Um, but once it's sort of integrated into our daily working routines, we're not really seeing the same impact. It's the change that people find most stressful. Obviously, you know, there's some inconveniences with heat and it does make people more uncomfortable. But, you know, taking all those those um you know, extra measures to make sure we are staying cool and well, well hydrated as best we can. You know, that that's sort of a, a big part of it, I guess. Um, and really, the, the other thing is it's just important that we really do focus on those other things that do keep us well, making sure that we're making time for, you know, exercise, our social lives, making sure we're getting enough sleep. So we are under increased pressure, and that's when those things are, are most important. But they're also the time when we're most sort of likely to let them slide. When we find ourselves more stressed, um, the first thing we do is, we go and eat junk and we don't exercise so we're really our worst enemy um, but it's really key that we actually put additional focus on that making sure that you know we're exercising we're eating well we're you know we're making sure we've got enough time for sleep maintaining our social connections and and really also those interests outside of work so when, when the pressures increase they're really really more important and often we have to make a conscious effort to make sure that they're maintained so i guess that that's individually but also within teams to make sure that you know, people are, you know, taking that time out to, you know, to, to recuperate and do some of those things that do keep them well. So it's the same things, I guess, it just sort of increases the emphasis on them. And we have to really keep them front of mind in terms of individually, but also as a team, you know, looking out for each other, making sure that, you know, people are taking that break. Um, and that that's really, really key. I'd like to drill down into that just a tiny bit more. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you often reach for the junk food, but the other thing that happened during the pandemic, of course, is alcohol sales spiked. A lot of people were drinking out of boredom, but other people were drinking to alleviate their anxiety. Around drinking alcohol, it might feel better in the moment, but I've read things that say that it can actually increase your propensity towards feeling anxious. Explain how that all works. Yeah, massively. Um, so alcohol is great short term, um, which is why people like it. But obviously, over time, it increases your risk massively of, of both anxiety and depression. And it, look, it's it's a real it's a short term strategy that has terrible consequences realistically. Uh, and a lot of those are over a sort of an extended period. So. Um, you know, it might take a while for the you know the the other side to show up. So if if you imagine that someone's feeling very anxious and then they have a drink, well, it does reduce the anxiety. It works very very effectively short term, um, but over time, what happens is that the anxiety increases in terms of where you're running your body down, so you're less able to to deal with the anxiety. But the other thing is because you're avoiding it with alcohol is that you're also not learning any other strategy to deal with it. So you've got the anxiety, you're sort of dulling it with alcohol which works really well for the few hours when you're doing it often people will feel more anxious the next day so there's there seems to be some physical effect in terms of it is making us more vulnerable to depression and anxiety and look those two often go together they're actually more often together than, than apart so people will experience sort of anxiety and then depression in sort of periods so that that's very common um, but alcohol will increase the risk of that dramatically i mean the the effect in terms of running down your body um, but also the fact that we're not actually just learning any other more helpful coping strategies to deal with that anxiety um, is, is the other problem that, that comes up there. But it's probably one of our worst coping strategies is, is alcohol. Uh, and you'll see alcohol, uh, cigarettes, um, will also you'll see people who smoke, that they'll go up in terms of consumption there. Same effect. Look, it's a, it's a short-term comfort, but obviously long-term it makes things much, much worse. One of the best ways of dealing with that is really 
you know, substituting that with exercise. So instead of you know feeling anxious and and having a drink, uh, you know, go for a walk, do some exercise, um, and that'll that'll have the opposite effect. You know, it'll it'll make you more resilient over time. There's there's one of the funny things you'll see is that people who are feeling better physically so they're you know in good health they you know their fitness is, is quite good they're actually much better at dealing with stress and anxiety uh, it does actually increase people's confidence over time and it, even the, you know the way they're feeling for themselves so if you're really run down it's very difficult to deal with with stress but if you're feeling fit and well within yourself you can deal with a lot more um but obviously look alcohol really short-term solution and, and terrible long-term solution. It just increases people's risk of um, depression and anxiety quite dramatically. Um, but also the impacts on relationships with alcohol. So um, particularly when times are hard, people have a, have a drink to try and cope, particularly if they're drinking too much. They might be saying things that they're going to regret. Um, and then they might also be experiencing that sort of dread and, and shame in terms of things they might have said or, or done when drinking. So it's a real negative spiral that people can get in with alcohol as a, as a coping strategy. It's not a good one. Um, so if people are having a problem with their, their alcohol, obviously there are support services out there. But even if it's early on, like really think about going for a walk instead of a glass of wine or a beer if, if you're finding that you're drinking more. You know, it's it, And it's not about you know drinking at all. It's about when people... People start drinking more than they normally do. That's when we worry. So that that's the key thing. If you know, if you feel like you're drinking more than normal, have a think about going for a walk, doing something else, um, because it's just a terrible way of trying to cope, and it doesn't work. You mentioned before uh, the danger too of avoiding the feeling of anxiety, and I mean it's not a nice feeling. I, I have suffered anxiety in the past, and it's something that I don't think anyone enjoys. But is there a benefit to actually sitting with that feeling and, and processing it rather than running away from it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, avoidance is the fuel of anxiety. So. Um, you know, the more we avoid something, the bigger it gets in our minds. So every time we sort of run away, what it tells our brain is that that thing is much bigger than us and we're smaller than it. So our anxiety gets worse and worse. It's absolutely the fuel of anxiety. So the key thing there is wherever we can, we avoid avoidance. And that's that, you know, that old saying um, where, you know, we do need to face our fears, obviously only when it's safe to do so. But, you know, the avoidance is absolutely the fuel um, that, that supports anxiety. Um, the other thing I'd say with um, you know, sitting with anxiety is that if you imagine sitting with anxiety, actually feeling what the physical sensations are within your body. So what, one of the things you'll notice with anxiety is that if you actually really pay attention to what we call the symptoms of anxiety, so you might have that sort of feeling in your stomach, you might have sort of a racing heartbeat. Often, if you actually pay attention to what it actually feels like, rather than trying to avoid the feelings, what you'll notice is it's not as bad as it often is when we're trying to avoid it. It's a really funny thing. So if you sit there and you're feeling anxious and you actually really pay attention to what's happening in, inside your body, what you can actually realize is that it's actually not as elevated as it might feel when we're trying not to think about it. Um, because as soon as we do that, it's a really funny thing is often what, what people experience is it'll actually calm them down. Okay, so my, my stomach feels a bit upset. How bad is that? And often if we pay attention to that, it actually sort of comes down by itself. It's a really interesting thing. Um, but when people are trying to avoid it, what it, what it seems is like, this is just horrible. I need to stay away from it. So that, that's a real thing that, that people do experience where the avoidance makes 
it seemed worse than it actually is. So it is an uncomfortable feeling, but it is made much more uncomfortable when we're trying to avoid it. It's a really, really funny experience. And it, it might not make sense, but if people actually do try it and they're feeling anxious and they go, well, what am I actually feeling in my body right now? So it's about going through, so where am I feeling it in my body and, and yep. naming it, is it? Yeah, well, you can absolutely name it. Some people name it. Um, so I, I would get people to sort of go through and absolutely explain to me what they're experiencing and really pay close attention to what it is. Um, because in, in a real sense, all that anxiety is, is really our body revving up for action and revving up for physical action. So, so it's not something that's really going to really, it's not going to hurt us. It's not, it's not something that's physically dangerous. Um, but often if we're, we're treating it as something that's really scary, it becomes a much more unpleasant experience. So we can absolutely just pay attention to, okay, so you know my hands might be shaking, my stomach might be upset, I might my heart might be pacing. And one of the, the good ways of thinking about this is this is absolutely your body preparing for action. That's what it really is. That, that's why we're in that situation. I mean, it's sort of fight or flight is, is what it is. Um, and if we see it in that way in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm really getting pumped up to, to act here, is that it doesn't seem so bad. And, and the other thing about it is if we're able to take action in terms of when we're feeling anxious, that brings it down as well. So as soon as we move from sort of being that sort of frozen with anxiety to taking action, um, it does sort of burn off some of that energy but also that makes us feel more confident to overcome those challenges because we're moving forward with them so that that's a, a really useful thing to realize that anxiety is not something that it's there to it's not there to really harm us at all it's actually there to really fire us into a state where we can we can act obviously sometimes people do freeze with anxiety and it can take a little while to to get to the point where we go okay so i'm feeling anxious but I can still move ahead and I can actually use that anxious energy to, to go and get some things done. Um, and that can be really, really useful. Uh, other things that are quite useful is even, you know, even if you want to take a bit of a shortcut there, you're feeling anxious, just go for a walk. You know, that can really, really help burn off some of that energy. Um, and you, you actually think much more clearly when you're, when you're walking as well. So you can actually think through that challenge. Um, but whatever, whatever you do, don't sit there and just sort of panic. It's not, not a great plan. <laughs> And pour a glass of wine. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. No, no. no. <laughs> so when you say take action, so is it thinking about, all right, well, what what are the things that are in my control right now? Is it thinking yeah. through, you know, they say control the controllables. Yep, absolutely. And that, that's an exercise. That it's quite simple to do just to, in our minds. Like we're thinking about, okay, so can I do anything about this? If there's nothing you can do about it, well, whatever energy you put into that, it's not going to get anywhere. It's going to just result in frustration. Um, but really what you want to do is think about, okay, so what's something I can do that will you know, see some sort of positive outcome? So that's that sort of control, no control kind of idea. And if you've got no control over it, it's wasted energy. So what you're doing is moving your focus to something that you do have control over and you're going to get some result. And every time you do that, the other thing that happens is that obviously you get more confident because you, you know, you're doing the these things they're having a, a positive result um, and your, your energy is achieving something and the other thing that will happen is the next time a challenge comes up you feel more confident to deal with that challenge um, so that the more that we can do that really focus on those things that are within our control we can make those practical changes and it also does build on our confidence it's funny isn't it a lot of it it's it's being kind of sneaky with your own brain so that you you're retraining your brain to think differently about whatever it's perceiving as a threat in the environment yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's, it's really looking at you know threat versus challenge is, is is a way of thinking about that um 
you know, threat is something you sort of run away from, challenge is something you might confront, and that can change quite quickly. And a challenge can look like a threat very, very quickly, depending on how you're approaching it. So as an organisation now, what would you describe as, as the next frontier now that we're in this stage of the pandemic? Where's the focus at now? Look, I, I think our focus at the moment is making sure that we keep our people well. Uh, and making sure that they can really maintain their own wellness so they can continue to provide that really high quality standard of care that we're you know famous for really uh, I think that's the the thing that we're really needing to focus on I I think our, our focus has always been you know the the finest the finest care to the furthest corner and that's been uh, an ongoing focus and it has been for a long time um, but underneath that we obviously need to make sure that our people are really well and able to maintain their own well-being so they can really support um, the roles that they're undertaking within the RFDS. I mean, we can provide a, a really good service, but it's also really important that we keep our people well so they can be operating at 100% and and really, you know, fulfil that promise. Uh, but we certainly need, do need to make sure that we're looking out for each other um, because it is the people within our organisation that, that make that happen. I don't think that's a new focus, but it's certainly a, an ongoing focus and it's more relevant now than maybe at any other point. It was really, really delightful and insightful to chat to you. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you very much. And that ends our journey together on this episode of our special RFDS podcast, Renewed Horizons Beyond the Pandemic. To learn more about The Flying Doctor, visit flyingdoctor.org.au forward slash Queensland. I'm Katrina Blowers and until next time, stay safe and stay well. Stay well.